It's December 1st, 2020, and this is Zero Politics. Welcome to episode 13 of Zero Politics, changing up the format as I promised to do in the past, but this time, finally, I'm going to do it, really, seriously. So let's jump right into it. In this episode, episode 13, and I hope to do a couple more today, um, I'm going to talk about the battle over reformatting and updating the Dominion voting machines and why it's important and how we can do better than these digital black box voting machines. Now, before we get started, let me remind you, this show is a critical thinking course in politics. It's really about using political issues as a jumping off point to talk about critical thinking, logical fallacies, and so on, and then to deconstruct media partisans, politicians, and the press uh, to look at what they're saying, look at their arguments on both sides of the aisle, and deconstruct them and find the flaws so that we can just learn to think more critically and then to find those flaws easier in the future so that we can think better about these things. Now, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to tell you who's right and who's wrong per se. I will tell you where the logical fallacies are, where the errors and thinking are, and then you can make up your own mind. And you might have uh, uh, arguments against me or, or some of the things that I say. And if you do, go to the website, adamspeaking.com is where I'm throwing all my podcasts up. And you can actually interact there. You can get a hold of me on, uh, on WhatsApp or um, via Twitter. Um, and then soon I'll be able to, and you can even leave me voice messages and stuff on WhatsApp. That's fine. And I would play those on the show. That way it can be a little bit more interactive and maybe in the future I'll add some more functionality as far as that goes. But let's jump into what I want to discuss in this episode and that's the battle over reformatting and updating the Dominion uh, voting machines that's been taking place in Georgia and why it's important and then what we can do better because I don't want to just uh, sort of look at the mainstream media, politicians and, and partisans and deconstruct them. I also want to, to throw out some ideas of, hey, this is how maybe we could do this better. This is a more logical way of going about this or an answer to that issue. All right. Now, I wrote an article about this. It's not really a, a well-written article. I didn't release it on the website like my other articles. It was more like a collection of thoughts. But let me run through, through those with you. Now, keep in mind as you're listening that Sidney Powell, the attorney who is um, sort of bringing forth these massive lawsuits on behalf of the president, and I'm not telling you what to think about her lawsuits. That's not the point of this show. But the point is to point out that she does say that she has evidence that the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, did receive payments in some way in return for allowing uh, Dominion voting machines into Georgia, which happened last year. I believe it happened in, in 2019, uh, just to be clear. When I say last year, I'm talking about 2019. So as you're listening, just remember that if he did receive fun, if he did receive some sort of kickback, some sort of enumeration for having um, you know, allowed these voting machines to be used while other states have rejected their use, it might say something about why he also allowed them to start wiping those voting machines clean just recently after the election. Now, having said that, some people might say, you know, that's circumstantial, Adam. That's not solid proof. It's not um, logically, (laughs) logically, uh, uh, absolutely foolproof argument. And that's true. That's completely true. It is circumstantial. But in a court of law, circumstantial evidence is... Uh, permitted. Not only is it permitted, but a lot of cases are actually won through just circumstantial evidence. 
uh, not it doesn't require absolute firsthand proof of something having happened. Now, so I just throw that out there as something to keep in mind. Now, when it comes to circumstantial evidence, I've talked about this before, in terms of making absolute claims, not the best idea. But in terms of a preponderance of evidence and in terms of uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law, circumstantial evidence is powerful. Now, let me read what I wrote here. It was reported that Brad Raffensperger had ordered all Dominion voting machines to be wiped clean and have a new version of software installed. However, in a public address, Raffensperger denied that claim, saying that he did not make such an order. He merely allowed for the removal of the data and software from the Dominion voting machines. Now, I'll just pause here for a moment. There's a lot of unanswered questions there. Not with respect to whether or not he made the order. Perhaps he didn't. Perhaps it was not an official order of any kind. But the questions I have have to do with what is his say in whether or not Dominion could do that anyways. They are, those machines do belong to Dominion. So there's a lot of unanswered questions here. Is it possible that Dominion could just go around to the various precincts or wherever those uh, voting machines happen to be at the moment and just start wiping them clean? Do they need permission? I don't know. I'd like to know. That sounds like the kind of thing that voters should know about. And perhaps, uh, perhaps some good investigative reporters should be asking those questions, but they're not. Now, a U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Baton actually ordered a stop to wiping those machines. It was apparently in process. And then, hours later, he reversed his decision. The basis for reversing the decision was that the machines were not in possession of Dominion voting but in the possession of the state election facilities. Now, by the way, this, this uh, court order to freeze any wiping of the machines was only in three voting precincts, which is, seems like a bad idea to me. Sorry, not precincts, but, but counties. It seems to me like a bad idea. I would think you should just across the board throughout the state order a stop to any wiping clean of election software and reinstalling new updated versions and so on. It just should not happen. Seems like an obvious bad idea. If people are going to want to investigate, it should be a statewide investigation. It should not be only in three counties. So again, his decision was based on the fact that Dominion voting machines weren't in the possession of Dominion voting, but were in the possession of the election facilities in those counties. And I personally honestly don't know what that has to do with it. And it's, but I'm, I'm sure it does. And I'm not suggesting the, the judge was making that decision nefariously. I just don't know what that has to do with anything. It seems like he could still uh, put a stay on any sort of reformatting of the election machines. But later that night, the judge, this was last night, um, my time anyways, and I'm in Europe. Later that night, the judge placed a restraining order on Dominion Voting from accessing these machines in order to protect the software on those machines from being wiped, which is good. And again, only in three counties as far as I know. Now, it appears to me that it's possible that Brad was trying to cover up evidence of fraud by having all the machines wiped. Why else would you (laughs) why else would you want the machines to be wiped or allow for them to be wiped and new software to be installed right after such a massive election? Did they, was there something wrong with the software that needed updates that they found during the election? And if that's the case, then we should know about it, right? 
As far as I know from what I've read, the excuse for reformatting and reinstalling new software is to provide updates. Again, if there's a need for updates, then what just happened during the election? And not long before the election, uh, Dominion Voting came in and installed updates to many of their machines in different um, states. So what was the need for those updates? It would be interesting to know. Were those updates then uh, uh, studied and were the, was the code looked at? Well, we know the code wasn't looked at because the code is an open source. I'll get to that in a minute. But were they tested? Was there a, a proper certification process? And by the way, I found out that only 5% of voting machines are actually certified or tested. What often happens is they assume that if they, attest, if they test 5% of the machines, then the rest of the machines should be fine too. Extremely problematic, as you can guess. That, that would make fraud very easy if only 5% of the voting machines are actually tested. So, as you can imagine, there's lots of logical questions that should come up regarding why these updates need to happen, why didn't they happen before the election, was there something during the election, usually software is updated when problems are found. Different kinds of problems include things like security issues. Microsoft Windows or Mac OS are updated when there's security issues a lot of times. So security issues, um, issues where there's bugs in the software and the software stops working, maybe it causes the, the system to shut down or in some way encounter a problem or difficulty where the system doesn't work as it's supposed to. If, if those issues were happening, it would be great for there to be a report on that. It would be great for people to ask, you know, why are they updating the software now in light of the fact that we just had this massive election? What was the problem that happened during the election that now justifies or requires the response of updating the software? And maybe we'll never know, but it's, it's possible we'll find out. It's good that the judge has realized that the software on these machines and the potential data on these machines is vital to a potential investigation. Now, will it be enough to prove anything, any sort of fraud? It might, Maybe, it might not, but that's why we need the investigations. Now, let me just take a little detour here. I mentioned open source software a second ago. The software used in these machines needs to be open sourced, but it's not. It's proprietary closed source software, which means no one is actually able to look at it except for the company themselves. Now, open source software is the most secure software. It just so happens that closed source software is notoriously insecure. And I'm going to give you three reasons why that's the case. Now, if you know anything about Linux, Linux is, is an alternative operating system that's used on computers and even on phones. And it's far more secure than Windows and Mac OS. And if you're familiar with it, you, you likely already know why it's more secure. It's completely open source. The code can be looked at. It can be uh, forked, which means you can take the code and create or change the code and make your own operating system should you want to. And what it allows for people to do, and these are the reasons why open source software is so much more secure. One, it means that more people are looking at, looking at the software and able to fix the problem. So if you have closed source software, the only people who can see it is the company who owns the rights to that software. So they might have, let's say they have 10 people working on their staff uh, programmers who are working on that particular software. Let's say in a, in a big company, you may have um, a few hundred engineers, software engineers working on that code. Um, but in a case like, like Dominion voting, 
you likely only have a handful of people who've actually ever seen the code. Obviously, the fewer number of people looking at and testing that code for problems and errors and securities, the less of a chance you're going to have of finding insecurities in that code. So when you have open source software, literally anyone who wants to look at it can look at it. Anyone can download it and anyone can take a look at it and then test the code to make sure it's secure, find all the vulnerabilities and so on. And that's really valuable because that allows more people to provide fixes for the insecurities. Now also, open source projects fix vulnerabilities and release patches or fixes um, a lot faster than a closed source proprietary software systems. The reason for this is, is obvious because if you have more people looking at it, you're going to have more people finding uh, bugs more often. And so you're going to have to fix those vulnerabilities. And this happens with Linux all the time. There's constantly small um, updates to the Linux operating system. And the reason for that is that people find bugs. It's not as though the, the programmers don't make mistakes. It's just that those mistakes are fixed uh, more quickly. And they're found, um, and more mistakes are fixed. So you have both more mistakes are being fixed, and they ha they're being fixed quickly, which is great. I mean, that's what you want in software. What often happens when uh, systems like, uh, let's say, Microsoft Windows, because it's closed source, most people um, are trying to find the vulnerabilities by guessing and trying certain previously known attack vectors to the software. So they may try something that was tried in the past, maybe change their code a little bit to try to attack the software at a different angle. Um, and then they eventually kind of stumble into finding, oh, there's a hole in the system. There's, a, there's an insecurity that we can take advantage of. With, um, if, you, if you know the code, you don't need to, you already, let's, let's say you're one of the developers on staff at Dominion, you can easily, knowing the code, already have a handle on what the vulnerabilities are. And you could turn around and sell that knowledge to other countries for a ton of money, and no one would ever know. And I'm not saying that that's happening, but what I'm saying is when you have closed software systems, it's actually easier for the people in the know, for people who have access to that um, or even people who don't have access to it but get access to it somehow. They get access to the code or they find vulnerabilities through just persistent attacks and, and checking the system and different um, trying different um, malware and so on to get into the system. And then once they do, they found that um, vulnerability and then they can turn around and sell that. And that's often what happens in the black hat hacking community. So when you have closed source software, closed source systems, it actually becomes easier for nefarious characters to access the system and provide that access to other people, to sell that access, to sell those vulnerabilities and so on. In an open source system, it's more difficult because you have lots of people looking at it. And so fixes are, uh, patches happen faster, updates happen faster. And as those updates happen, or because they're happening faster, it's more difficult for people with who would otherwise have. In, it's more difficult for hackers to then take advantage of those because you know they find a vulnerability. Next thing they know, it's fixed because someone else found it. A lot of times, people don't even black hat hackers don't even bother trying to find holes and vulnerabilities in open source software for that reason. Instead, they focused on closed sourced software 
where it's easier for them to gain inside, you know, once they find an attack or gain inside knowledge uh, of a vulnerability, they're able to take advantage of that vulnerability for a long period of time before it ever gets fixed. And that brings me to point number three that's raised by um, some articles I found. Practically all commercial software uses a healthy chunk of open source, but in many cases it's not appropriately managed. And, and so that creates problems because the closed source system has open source um, has open sourced software in it as part of it. So code that came from open sourced projects. And if that code that's open sourced has vulnerabilities, it's easier for someone from the outside to take advantage of those because those commercial companies who have that closed source software, they rarely update their software. They're not nearly as fast as fixing the vulnerabilities. So as a result, if there is a problem with the open source software in their system, that could be taken advantage of, and it's rarely updated. So it's better for companies who are closed source to be entirely closed source than it is for them to use chunks of open source software in their system. Unless they update their system, unless they update those open sourced chunks of code uh, more often than they do their closed source software. Because again, those open sourced chunks of code are going to have uh, more people looking at them more people aware of what the possible um, insecurities might be. So those are three reasons why open-sourced software is much safer and more secure than closed-source software. And I would argue all of the voting machines in the U.S., really all of the voting machines in the world, should be open-sourced for that reason. Though, to be sure, such machines should not be used at all in any election anywhere in the world, as far as I'm concerned. We need to go back to on-location public hand-counting, and I'll explain that in a moment. Now, getting back to the article, we already know that their software has vulnerabilities. This has been proven over and over again by hackers in universities, hacker conventions, state testing events, and from individual experts who've all been all over the news over the last 10 years. You can go onto Google and do a quick search for uh, university professor hacks voting machines, or even seven-year-old hacks a voting machine in one minute or something like that. Believe me, you'll find the articles put out by mainstream media even. It's not, it's not as though it was kind of um, a belief that was held by more conspiratorially-minded people. No, this was mainstream news on CNN and MSNBC and other places in the past 10, 20 years where they've been talking about the vulnerabilities with regard to these black box voting machines. But we don't have to look at the source code to know that Dominion voting machines can flip votes, that they can literally take votes from one candidate and give them to another. In fact, it says so right in their manual. Of course, it doesn't say, use our software to flip elections. No, it doesn't say that. Of course not. What it says is that votes can be later changed by software administrators either on-site or off-site. Yes, votes can be changed by anyone who has access to the operating system. And I'm not talking about uh, the need to hack into anything. It's part of the software's functionality that votes can be switched. And there are people that have access at every facility where these machines are being used. There are several different scenarios for which Dominion provides this functionality. Let me explain. Let's say a voter makes a mistake. He's at a machine. He, he makes a vote. There's a mistake in some way. It would be required or it would be necessary, right, for that 
mistake to be reversed somehow. And the only way you can do that is to go into the software and say, whoops, this vote was in error and it needs to be switched to this other candidate. And they have functionality for fixing those mistaken votes. There are a number of examples provided by Dominion in their publicly available uh, videos on YouTube and in their manuals for which votes may need to be switched. There's lots of there's blank ballots and all of these different issues where they can literally just take a select a whole bunch of votes and just, to put it in, in modern computer terminology, just drag and drop those votes from one candidate over to another. They can just select all of these votes and say these votes were an error and need to be shifted over to this candidate. Now, of course, Dominion is going to say, well, yeah, that's functionality for us to, you know, fix problems that occur in voting. Yes, but does it or does it not allow you to switch votes? Does it or does it not allow an administrator with the privileges to switch the votes? And the answer is yes, it does. And that's really all you need to know to answer the question, is fraud possible? Yes, it is. And there's other ways it's possible with their machines, too. You can have votes loaded on um, thumb drives, and if you can get those thumb drives into the machine or via the internet and so on. There's lots of different ways that fraud can happen, which is why, again, these voting machines have been all over the news for the last 20 years and especially the last 10 years with regard to the potential for fraud. Now, they will point out that they have a paper trail. But this is an overstatement, and oftentimes you'll hear it just put that way. No, there's a paper trail. There's a printout. Okay. Well, look at the details, and you'll, and you'll realize why that's an overstatement. In some cases, there is no paper trail, first of all, because no paper trail is sometimes required by the state or the county. Yes, believe it or not, in 2020, there are still states and counties that require no paper trail for a digitally cast vote. Now, in other cases, paper trails consist merely of a barcode or a QR code. And the voter or the counter, the vote counter, has no idea for whom the person voted based on that code. They can't interpret a QR code or a barcode. They have no idea who the vote was for. Only the computer knows. And without a full recount, it's not possible to know how many votes may have been later switched by comparing the paper trail to the total vote. Okay, that would require a, an entire total vote recount of at least a whole county or a whole state. Now, what's worse is that without the original voter present to verify whether the barcode or QR code on their ballot is correct, it's possible that the vote total and the paper trail may agree while still representing totally incorrect votes. You know, so if they voted for one candidate, but the machine flipped their vote unbeknownst to them, which they would never know, and then the QR code comes out and it says this person voted for Biden, and by the way, all these QR codes are specific to the, to the actual vote, the time, the place, and all of that, so the, it's, all these QR codes are different. You can't tell by looking at a QR code who the vote was for. So the person takes their, their QR code and they say, okay, well, I, I guess my vote went through, and then they walk away. And then they give that Q, they might run that QR code or barcode through a, a scanner, in which case uh, then they don't they they don't even have have it anymore as a receipt. But uh, then the counter later in a recount does the recount and the QR code or the barcode says correctly that they voted for candidate A. But the problem is that 
They voted for candidate B originally, and the vote was switched, and the QR code was switched. So the vote paper trail and the final vote agree. The paper trail and the recount line up, right? But that still doesn't mean that the vote was recorded correctly. Now, due to these and many other issues, it should be clear that it's rather easy to rig an election using these kinds of machines. Even an investigation of the machines themselves may not reveal any fraud. Remember, the software itself is designed to be able to change votes as needed. I mean, it's part of the design of the software. So it's not like you're going to look at, the, look at the software and say, oh my goodness, it can flip votes. They're going to say, well, yeah, that's part of the functionality. That's how we sell the machines. It's in our manual. It's in our sales, sales uh, pamphlets. It's on our videos on YouTube. So apparently there's nothing illegal about providing those with access to the machines the ability to switch votes. Either as someone is voting, as they're voting, it's happening, or after the fact. Apparently that's legal. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. Now the argument is being made by experts that the real-time data from the election, which I've looked at myself and I concur, shows extremely questionable irregularities such as votes being taken away from Trump and given to Biden and batches of tens and hundreds of thousands of votes all showing up within minutes for Biden from the last batch, which is not something that's typical or normal in election. This is why you had, when you look at the, the um, voting data, the real-time voting data as it was coming in, you see this curve. If you've seen these now very famous um, memes online, showing the blue and red curve, one for Donald Trump and one for Biden, and then you have Biden shoot up instantaneously to catch up with, with Trump again. That is not normal. That is not normal. Now, people will say, oh, that's because all, that's all of the, um, the mail-in ballots. No, it's not. If you, look at, if you look at that, that wasn't. The mail-in ballots were already being counted by that time. These were late, early-in-the-morning batches of mail-in ballots that came in at three in the morning or so. And again, we can't even necessarily connect the mail-in batch that came in at, say, three in the morning with the jump in that vote total. There's no way to connect those two in an absolute way. Maybe you could have eyewitnesses say, you know, I was part of counting those big batches that came in. But here's the thing. Let's say... And we have multiple eyewitnesses swearing under oath that at a certain time early in the morning, they saw a van pull up, and there are multiple accounts of this in multiple states, with a bunch of mail-in ballots that were already opened, which is illegal. Um, some, some of the ballots were loose. They weren't even in uh, envelopes. And so you had all of these ballots, and they were 90% for Biden, and as they were being counted... And you, you might be able to connect one of those batches of, say, 20,000 or 100,000. Some of them were 150,000 votes that came in with one of these, with one of these jumps in the real-time data. And that still wouldn't mean that it's not fraudulent. But, the real, but a big question is this. When those votes came in, why did it take them only minutes to count them? If, if you want to argue that those big jumps in the real-time data were a consequence of these late-night batches of votes coming in 
from, I don't know, maybe they had a whole bunch of people out there collecting votes from mail-in drop boxes that hadn't been discovered yet, and so they brought those in at 3 a.m. in the morning. Let's say that's what it was. How is it that those came in, and then only minutes later you see this massive increase and spike of 100,000, 150,000 votes, so it only took them 10 minutes to count all those votes? It would take hours, I would think, to count all of those votes. So I don't buy it. I don't buy that those digital real-time voting jumps came from late-night batches of... Now, those late-night batches of votes did come in, in, in trucks and cars and so on, but they're highly suspect, and there's no way they counted them in minutes to get those 100,000 jump increases for Biden. It's just I'm not buying it. It doesn't seem to make sense logically. And I don't even know that those real-time vote increases even came or were connected with those batches. But certainly there were batches of very dubious votes coming in, very dubious at the middle, in the middle of the night, 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. Now, so the argument can be made from experts that the real-time data is rather problematic. There are also examples of large numbers of votes being taken away from both candidates and then added back again, but in different shares with more of the votes going to Biden than to Trump. And I've seen that data myself, and it doesn't make any sense. Why would any, in any legitimate election, would you ever have votes being removed from candidates and then added back in a few minutes later with a different proportion of votes? Now, bear in mind that these voting machines don't actually count the individual votes. They have a weighted system of points per vote, and they keep a running percentage representing the score, and the number of votes for each candidate has to be deduced mathematically by looking at the percentages and the vote total. So it's actually impossible to know how many actual votes a candidate got. And that could lead to problems in and of itself in a very close election. So this should not be happening in a fair election. Okay, and I'm not trying to provide proof of ev- or evidence of fraud here. What I'm trying to do is show, expose the problem with these voting machines, what it might suggest, which is, the possibility of fraud, and again, I'm not arguing that here. I'm just showing that that is a possibility, that it's, it's in the realm of possibility. It's not insane to think that fraud may have taken place. I just don't think a lot of these things should be happening in a fair election. There's plenty of evidence that fraud is a possibility, that the commission of fraud is something that could take place. Now, is it enough to justify not certifying the vote? In several swing states, I think, I think it is, personally. I think it is at this point. And in the future, in light of all of this, what I think is most important is that in the future, paper ballots must be cast and counted on location, by hand, in public, using a projector screen so that everyone who's there in public can see each and every vote counted. It's a very simple system. It doesn't require a chain of custody where we take votes from one location, drive them across town, and do who knows what with them in the meantime uh, until they arrive at some centralized location. No, every voting place and every precinct has the ballots cast in public, counted in public, on location, by hand, using a projector screen. Every vote cast is placed under uh, a, a recording equipment, that not only records the vote, 
But that vote is then cast onto the wall on a large projector so that everyone in public who's there. So this bypasses the whole need for election monitors. Everyone who wants to show up at that location and watch the vote can see each and every vote that was cast being counted. And this all happens in public. There's no need for any closed doors. There's no need for any... You just you don't need it. And if you've been paying attention... You saw lots of videos with, you know, people going behind closed doors and people dragging boxes in and out of places and people with um, USB cards going to machines and so on. This kind of stuff is reprehensible. And it certainly, as far as I'm concerned, casts a shadow of doubt on the whole election process. All right. Now, those are my thoughts on that issue. Not so much about logical fallacies and so on, but more about obvious questions that should be asked and that need answers. And hopefully what I think is a perfectly sensible and the most logical way forward, which is, again, to cast paper ballots and to have them counted on location by hand in public using a projector screen so everyone can see each vote as it's counted. Other people can even count along. I mean, to me, it sounds very simple. And that's the way it used to be done. But now in the last 20 years or so, We've started to, well, longer than that, we've started to move to tabulation machines and taking the votes from a voting place over to um, centralized location for counting and so on. Why do that? That's all problematic. That opens up, uh, to the possi- opens up the whole process to the possibility of fraud. It makes no sense. I think my solution is something that is logical, easy to do, and there's really no justification for not doing it except that you want to commit fraud. All right, thanks everybody for listening. If you want to go over to the website again, it's adamspeaking.com. Subscribe to the show if you're not already subscribed. I'm going to start new podcasts in the future. I do release articles over there that I don't talk about necessarily on the show. Uh, So if you want to read some interesting articles that I've written over at the website, adamspeaking.com. And you can also support the show. Just click the support button over there and it will show you how you can easily support the show. The easiest and best way is to open up your cash app right now while you're listening. Just open up the cash app if you use it. Search for Adam Angst, username Adam Angst, and then send me whatever you think is commensurate to the value you get out of the show. Whatever you feel like sending along, I thank you so much because it just helps me recuperate the cost of the time that I put in to doing this and hosting the website and the, you know, all of that. So it just goes back into the show and I'm not doing this because it's my primary line of work. I don't, you know, not dependent on the cash, but I do put in a lot of time. And so I really appreciate any financial support that you could give. And I don't want to do advertising. I'm just not into it at all. All right. With that being said, again, go out and find something true, good, and beautiful in this world to focus on for a while today. Please, You won't find it in politics.